welcome to the Sacred Stew. I'm your host, James. This is my co-host, Anthony. And uh, we are getting together on this cold, cold, wintry day during the Yuletide season, as they call it, uh, to just talk about Yule and talk about things uh, that we, we practice, a little bit of history on it. And hopefully by the end of this conversation, we will impart some uh, good ideas uh, for people to implement and do during the Yule season. So uh, with that said, Anthony, uh, I know that it's been a few weeks since we've actually dropped an episode. We've tried a couple times to connect. It just seemed it didn't work out. We got to try to find a little bit more time as, as much as we can. But during the holiday seasons, it, it becomes a little bit difficult to do these podcasts. Especially when we both still got nine to fives. Speaking of which, it's so cold. Uh, you know, they're calling the the storm that's sweeping across the nation a once in a generation storm. Um, I remember when I was a kid. Actually, uh, we had a ice storm that that impacted all of the Midwest, knocked out electricity for, I think it was like a couple weeks actually where I lived at. And we had to warm ourselves with a kerosene heater in the house and have uh, light by candles, which I guess kind of harkens back to the old day, the old days and, and such. Have you ever experienced a blackout like that from winter storms? Uh, yeah, last year, it, I mean, last year down here, it wasn't a full-fledged storm. But enough things happened that it knocked out power to me in April for like a day or two. Oh, yeah. You're talking about the April uh, snowstorm that just happened all of a sudden, like the first or second day of April. <laughs> yeah, we got dumped three feet of snow pretty much where I live overnight. That was insane. Yeah, and it was like, I want to say a good five, six inches in, in, in the Portland area. And, I mean, that's like unheard of. Which is a snowmageddon. Yeah, that's like a snowmageddon for real for urbanites. Yeah, I mean, y'all over in the Midwest and in other parts of the country, five, six inches might be normal in the winter. Up here in the Pacific Northwest, it's usually more wet than snowy. That is snowmageddon in the big cities. Well, at least for elevations below like a thousand feet um, sea level, it's mostly rainy. Because where I live, we, we do actually, we're at 1,500 feet, and we do get uh, uh, snow where I live. So we have a wintry, snowy Yule time. Uh, well, you're in BFE, so. <sighs> so, hey, since our last episode, um, man, that, that really got a lot of conversations going. And I don't really want to jump back into it because so much time has passed now since that conversation. Uh, but I, I like the dialogue that uh, we're creating and that we're engaging in. And the only thing I will say is, you know, a lot of people kind of miss the point of uh, what we were talking about, you know, in regards to uh, foreign platonic thought and such, thinking that we are trying to argue the merits of the platonic system, which we were not. Uh, we were pointing out that it's not a Germanic theological or religious spiritual system. Yeah, and while some people would argue 
that there are certain aspects that would fit or could mesh. We're not, we're not pick. We're not trying to pick and choose. We are just saying that as a greater whole, the platonic theory is being a foreign influence is not compatible with our ancestral ways. Exactly. But let's not spend too much time on that at all because I do want to make this uh, broadcast, this this podcast here, mostly just about uh, the Yule time uh, traditions and how it's practiced and what is tradition, what isn't tradition, a little bit of history of it. Um, but one more thing I want to get to before we jump to that is those polls that we put out on our Telegram channel. Speaking of which, if you guys don't follow us uh, on on Telegram, you should. We have a channel there where we post uh, different topics, different ideas, different discussions, uh, different things that people might find of interest. Um, especially during this Yuletide season, we've been posting up uh, essentially a kind of a, a traditional day-by-day guide for people that they could uh, check out and if they like it, uh, implement it. But uh, you can follow us on Telegram, YouTube, Anchor.fm. Uh, it's also on all of the major podcast medias like Spotify and Apple Podcasts, uh, but check us out, follow us, if you like our content, share it, we are growing, um, but anyways, back to the the polls that we did, alright, so we had two poll questions that we put out, and the first poll, actually, we had over 500 people cast a vote on this poll, and uh, the results were pretty interesting, essentially, it asks... What option below best describes the reason you are pagan? The first answer was was the the awe of nature, identity, tradition, theological beliefs, philosophical ideas, my children, I like to hang out and drink. It seems pretty cool. There's a lot of badass tattoos or other. So these were the, the list of choice that people could select on the reason why they became pagan or are pagan. Do you remember which one had the highest vote, Anthony? I want to say off the top of my head, it was a toss up between tradition, children and other. I want to say those three were fairly close, but I can't remember which was the number one? So the number one, the number one reason why people uh, identified or are pagan was twenty nine percent voted for identity, fifteen twenty three percent voted for the awe of nature, and fifteen percent voted on tradition. Those were the top three, and I re- I actually really found this um, a, a good poll because what I'm trying to do with these polls is I'm trying to kind of classify 
different aspects because I had some people comment to me that, you know, some of these things interlap, like, for example, tradition and identity or theological beliefs and tradition or the awe of nature and theological beliefs. They kind of overlap a little bit. But what I'm trying to do is get somebody's natural gut reaction out of these polls to identify, you know, the concept that makes them a pagan in their mind. Um, we did have the option for there's a lot of badass tattoos, and apparently there's a couple people out there that that applies to Anthony. <laughs> I was going to say, if those people got honor tattoos, we might have to have a discussion with them. <laughs> honor tattoos. Yeah. Here's a phrase. Honor tattoos. The tramp stamp of Vikings in the modern age. <laughs> But then also, uh, one of the other options was I like to hang out and drink. There was a few people that also voted that way. And I actually appreciate the honesty of people in, in, in their decisions here, you know, because there's a lot of people that do actually participate in events and stuff, but they don't necessarily, like, understand the traditions or believe in the traditions. But they feel some sort of com camaraderie there that... Uh, just the energy apparently they like to be around we were at a bloat last weekend actually and there was somebody there that said he doesn't really know too much about you know the the faith or the traditions and he's not really interested in religion but then as we started going through the whole bloat and the event you know i guess afterwards he started asking a lot of questions like hey well what is this you know so it is an important thing, even if people are just hanging around the fire drinking, you know, that bro brotherhood, sisterhood, the camaraderie that we build, because that's actually the true religion. It's actually the true faith, that spirit that we have between each other. Yeah, like that answer, I kind of put on level with that there's some people, like there's some people that have been drawn to our faith, say, from the Marvel movies, the Marvel Thor movies or the, the Thor comic books, whatever's going to like, whatever piques your interest and brings you in, in the door. Like I'm not going to knock personally. I'm not going to knock whatever it is that gets you to come home because you come around, you're going to enjoy, you're going to enjoy the vibes. You're going to start feeling it and you're going to learn, learn more. I don't care what brings you home. Just come home. Yeah, and there's not a better time to actually talk about coming home than ex especially in the Yuletide season because that's what it is about is that family bond, those connections that we have with our not just our blood family but our, uh, our inner circle of friends that we share life with. Um, and if a lot of people out there don't have that, you know, and we need to be inviting into our circles of people that have a genuine interest to actually build that. So, but on those poll results, identity is the number one reason why people identify themselves as pagan. So the second poll question that we asked, this question really kind of followed i had this um, i have this line of thinking where i'm trying to systematically break down the the gut instincts of people and 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 narrow a couple i guess ideological or theological concepts down that uh really 
hone in for people. So this one kind of follows the, the previous question. The question is, what option below best describes and or defines your identity? So obviously taking the response of people as identity being the reason that they're pagan in the previous question. This, this question, I'm trying to understand what is it that best describes or that identifies that identity? Uh, first answer is spirit, spirituality and theology, traditions and customs, nationality, race, culture, Germanic, Celtic, Indo-European, Aryan, or other. Which one did you choose, Anthony? I want to say I chose customs and traditions. Just because, for me, the nationality or race, it's a thing that is not my first focus. And I do acknowledge that there were slight differences between various regions of our folk. So I think, for me, it was just learning the broader customs and traditions. And me personally, I'm not a big fan of the broader Indo-European minded movement because I feel like we go that far back and we're just blending and watering down the traditions of our ancestors. We're just trying to force them all back together to a singular point and that is antithetical to the spirit of our ancestors. We are always moving forward. Different groups are going to define themselves and to just go back to the Indo-European point negates the Norse, our Nordic ancestors, negates our Germanic ancestors, negates our Anglo-Saxon ancestors, so on and so forth. Right. Well, I, I also chose traditions and customs. And again, this was one of the poll questions, you know, where I got responses from people saying, you know, hey, uh, I, I would choose multiple of these. You know, they're all kind of interconnected. And it, it is, that's the case. But I'll give an example. I, I, I chose traditions and customs uh, versus choosing, for example, Germanic. Because while I do identify as Germanic and have a love for the Germanic tribe, um, the traditions and customs of the Germanic tribe, obviously, uh, that's, that is what makes it, you know, Germanic. Or that is the culture. However, if I choose Germanic over traditions and customs, at least in my mind, the way I see it, is I'm identifying more on a superficial level of things that doesn't necessarily uh, give me a connectedness to what it is for being Germanic. So the results of this poll, the top three were, number one was, was Germanic. So uh, that was the number one identifier. And we had uh, over 140 people vote in this poll. So I appreciate everybody that's participating in this. Uh, it's helping our discussions and the things that we talk about on the podcast and just conversations uh, with our friends and families and chats and in real life interactions as well. Um, the second choice was spirituality and theology. 
which can again be part of the corpus of traditions and customs. You know, some of these things are really closely tied together. Traditions and customs was fourth. So the answer that got the third amount of votes was Aryan, that they feel like that word uh, is what defines or describes their identity best. So, and I certainly understand um, people's intent with choosing that. Uh, we did an episode in season one where we actually kind of discuss uh, the terminology of Aryan, how it came to be. Uh, I would advise you recommend that people go listen to that. Um, because while I'm not totally against the use of it, um, I think that is a word that doesn't necessarily best encompass who we are as a tribal folk of the Germanic peoples. Would you agree? Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. It's not the best descriptive term. And as much as I hate modernity and all the all the stuff that's going on, we do also have to be mindful of what terms we're using individually and collectively to present ourselves in the best possible light. We're never going to look quote unquote good to certain, certain groups of people, but we still have to present ourselves in the best possible light that we can. And to use a grammatically, what I understand to be a grammatically incorrect term that also has such negative, an, a negative visceral response from the majority of even our own folk is counterproductive. Yes, generations of brainwashing has certainly seen to certain trends in the thinking processes we have today as a society, especially in the Western nations. It's amazing that they've been able to actually teach our own people, our own folk, our own children to hate ourselves. Uh, I have a niece, uh, Jessica's niece actually, uh, that uh, now calls her mother the uh, birthing person instead of mother. It's really sad what, what they're doing to our children. It's, it's one of the reasons why how we identify ourselves is so important. Yeah. Towards... The discussion about Yule, it is so important for us in this time to gather with our families, to share stories, to share knowledge, to share information with one another so that we can uh, actually raise healthy children that have good relationships with their kith and kin, that understand their place in the universe and are not easily manipulated and controlled. But I don't want to turn the podcast into a political discussion, especially during the season when we're recording it, Yuletide. So, it's beginning to look a lot like Yuletide. <laughs> How do you feel about the season, Anthony? How's your Yuletide going? I mean, I recognize the importance of it. One of the big things that I am adjusting to coming into our ancestral traditions is I was raised Jehovah witness. So holidays in general 
didn't have a any sort of real significance. So for me, a lot of times, like I'm having to kind of force myself into the Christmas spirit or the the Yuletide spirit, just because it it's a learning curve for. It's been the hardest learning curve for me, really. I think that a lot of I think a lot of people actually. Uh, even people that identify as heathen or Germanic pagans or whatever term they want to call themselves uh, actually uh, suffer from the exact same thing. Not necessarily getting in the spirit of the time, you know, with having family and friends over, but in the sense of being able to actually connect with an authentic yuletide tradition one that actually has substance and means something just because a lot of heathens today have only recently as adults come into heathenry so for them a lot of them are are just kind of bouncing around of like you know how do i do this how do i figure out you know what's what's what in this tradition so i can i can understand certainly uh what you're saying but yours is even to a even more severe degree because you weren't even raised with any type of quote-unquote christmas spirit during these times yeah and i know another aspect and i know i'm not the only one that uh has is we you know we we depending on who you ask you're going to hear three nights of Yule, nine nights of Yule, 12 nights of Yule, 13. I've heard 13 nights of Yule. And everybody's going to have an articulated point. So especially if you're new, you're always going to have that nagging question in the back of your mind. Whatever number you choose to do, you're going to be like, oh, am I doing this right? And that's going to really affect your ability to get into the practice and the and the spirit of it. No, you're right, a hundred percent. There's a lot of confusion that just embed has embedded itself in the Yule tradition and what and what it is and and how we recognize it. I mean, if you go through folklore itself, there are. Tons and tons of stories, for example, about the wild hunt, you know, uh, and there's lots of various descriptions of it. And I think, you know, what a lot of people do is they absorb that information that they hear from these stories that were recorded. Um, and, and they don't really get past what the symbolism of it is. And they, they, see a lot of contradictions in you know well it says this and it says this over here you know what exactly is it is king arthur the bear king that comes back after yule is on is he the one that goes on the wild hunt uh is it odin is it uh Halle? you know what exactly is is happening you know and and how do i make sense of it but and I want to touch on all of those things, but I want to first actually touch on uh, the spirit of this time and what was transpiring during this period of time for our 
folk and ancestors in the past because before modern era with electricity and heat that can be uh, used throughout the, the heat the whole home we lived in darkness with candles and fires that kept us warm and gave us light and during this period of time uh, it was known to be you know the start of the cold the shortest of the days in the year and so families would gather in their homes and they would get together uh, during the summer the spring and summer and fall they were out hunting uh, traveling on many different journeys getting new things to bring back to the stead uh, for the winter time and when they would do this they would have feasts and give gifts to each other and tell stories to one another so I think those basic concepts of what actually physically happens during that winter period for us in connection to our family is that's the spirit of what this is all about, of what this holiday is all about. And you being raised a Jehovah Witness is kind of sad, at least, you know, the way I see it, that you probably didn't have, you know, any sort of uh, like family get togethers during this time. Did you, I mean, my mom would, my mom would get me and my sister presents, but like, it was never on any specific day. And it very early on, I pretty much figured out that my mom just got me and my sister's presents. So we wouldn't get picked on for not getting presents during Christmas time. I mean, which is a very lucky right. thing to do. Like, I'm not knocking her for that at all. But when you're six, seven, eight years old, and you know that's the only reason you're getting something, you're happy for the gifts, but there's a an understanding. Like, especially in my case, like I was the only I was the only son. It was me, my mom, and my sister. So I'm watching out for my sister. You know, like very early I had, I was forced into looking at things like that and having to understand it. Whereas I was raised, you know, with a whole tradition, albeit one based with the Christian motive overhead of it. But, you know, even with those Christian motives and whether or not you actually had a tradition during this time, there's one thing I think everybody acknowledges is that everything about what is called the Christmas season or the Yuletide season is 100% heathen. Like it goes back to the most ancient roots that predate Christianity. I believe we touched on some of this stuff in our two-part Christian conversion episodes. Yeah, a little bit. And, you know... The, the part of this that, uh, and by the way, another plug, go check out those episodes if you haven't. Very important. Even leads to the discussion today about, you know, how you will subvert it. But before we get to that part of the conversation, um, I just thought I might share some of the things that we do in my house uh, during this period. Um, that way for people out there that are, are wondering, um, 
you know, what they can do, ideas for different things. Uh, during this period, and I recognize that there are two aspects to Yule, um, this period not actually being the Yule itself, but rather part of the Yule tide or the season of Yule. Uh, Yule itself actually comes in January, but during the season, what my family does is we have a you know a nightly ritual that we do uh, during the three days of the solstice, and uh, we get together as a family in a circle. Uh, we have some prayers and say some stories and. And then we give an offering and we light uh, our Yule flame and we carry it around our home. And the woman of the house, Jessica, my wife, actually carries it around. And she says a prayer to the Deseer, to the goddesses, seeking, you know, warmth and fertility and light and love and laughter and happiness to be in this home as a ward to our home. Because the cold was a force that drove you into your homes and you were seeking shelter from that cold and all of the ills that come with it. So for, for me and my practice and what I do is, you know, during those 12 days, every night we have some sort of uh, offering that we give to uh, either the mother of night herself, the goddess Nat, or to Frigga, the earth, and then also to the Deseer when we give to her. And then we give offerings throughout this period to the land Vatir around our home, the land spirits, whites, uh, and then obviously Odin. So I correspond, and we can get to a little bit more of this later, but I correspond the, the 12 days of you as we know it uh, to the three days of the solstice and then the, the nine days of the wild hunt. Um, I also do gift giving with my children, but instead of it being on a specific day, uh, we open a gift each day of those days. So it's a really fun time for for the family and kids. Um, one other little tradition we have, and there's no authenticity to this, but uh, I did read some time ago uh, about, or I heard a story some time ago about some tradition in Iceland where they would hop around the home three times and it might have been part of some type of land taking right or something but I had read this many many years ago or heard it many many years ago and when my children were super small and just learning how to you know walk and run uh, this tradition began in my house where on each of the nights the 12 nights uh, after we give our offering and the prayer said with the house wife doing leading that vigil uh, we do what is called the magic stocking and the magic stocking is uh, we have a little dance that we do where we hop around on one leg in a circle three times and we have a little song that we made up and do a little jingle to that and then when my children are younger they kind of caught on since but when they were younger uh, the stockings would just magically fall and they would find them and be able to choose something out of that stocking. Uh, of course, it was me hiding the stockings and secretly letting them drop from my arms. Uh, but the kids really loved that, that idea. But 
that's some things that we do in my home and you know maybe you guys can implement something uh, similar if you don't know or have any ideas or traditions of what you can do I don't know what do you think about those traditions that I have Anthony I mean whether they're quote-unquote authentic or not historically like that sounds super fun for little kids and that's a huge portion of these of this is bringing the family together building those relationships and just having fun like i mean i i feel like in this regard i would personally go with even if you just make up some random random stuff to do each night like it's in the spirit of it like what there is a lot of room for individualization when it comes to what's happening in the home so i mean i i was smiling while you were describing it just thinking about how i would have felt as a kid you know being little and i'm hopping around the floor having a good time and all of a sudden stockings full of presents are magically appearing you know and in another light you know regarding these traditions that i do it's also a good means to introduce or explain certain aspects of the yule tradition to them and i want to relate this a little bit back to you where you talked about not really having a tradition when you grew up like there was no quote unquote significant element to what was happening during this season um in creating that because even as pagans today many of them are confused there's all this conflicting information out there how do you practice it are you doing it right are you not doing it right um but the thing is is you know creating that tradition even if it's your own although you know I will present an argument of a very uh, good tradition that I practice that I, you know, think that would would benefit others here later in the podcast. But creating that tradition or having that tradition that you do, even if you don't actually believe in it, is important for the next generation that we're raising now. Because after hundreds of years of us being programmed to not believe in our native faith uh it's important that as we're awakening to what that native faith is and the attachment to our old traditions and customs and the beliefs in our gods that we pass this down to our children in a way that will be cohesive for them and can be understood easily by them and that's what these traditions are doing. So there's the old phrase, you know, fake it till you make it. And so many of us are damaged today uh, just because of our upbringings in this society that has turned to just a cesspool of indecency that even if we are faking going through the motions, the children that we're teaching that are coming after us will inherit something that actually means something to them. Does that make sense? Yeah, I've heard the saying, fake it till you make it before. I'm, I'm a little bit more of a fan uh, in certain regards of fake it till you become it. But tomato, tomato. 
So what do you understand about the Yule tradition from a mythological or folkloric standpoint, Anthony? So I've got a fairly basic understanding. I know that some of it revolved around uh, the shortest day of the year. Um, oftentimes in certain certain parts of especially northern Europe during this time of the year, the sun would be gone for days at a time. Um, so the tradition and rituals were about bringing the sun back. Um, I've read some things where uh, the wild hunt is chasing away the the Yotan and the negative uh, malevolent spirits that keep the sun away and cause other problems. And there is some suggestion that it is also representative representative of the reign of the false Odin or a false Odin and that the rituals are to bring Odin back. A lot of, lot of, lot of different stuff. Things that do kind of seem to conflict with one another. Right. And the problem is, is that we have a lot of this recorded in, folklore versus the mythological um stories of it so and we spoke about the folklore in the previous episode uh where folklore was more regionalized and the stories had a lot more variance because of it being regionalized that um and a lot of it was manipulated by the church itself because of how uh, disperse these stories were on a regional level but um, you have like for example the story of the wild hunts and there's a lot of confusion of what exactly this is and I would argue that those folkloric stories are just remnant memories of a deeper understanding that the folk had um, of what they represented what these periods of time and what these stories represented um, that there's a much older understanding that pervades beneath just the general level of telling the story of Odin going on the wild hunts and collecting souls or perched uh, you know grabbing souls and babies and such a lot of stories are even invented in the last couple years couple hundred years excuse me uh like the story of uh jack frost and the story of santa claus has evolved over time we can see a lot of these stories and though they have their roots in our heathen past they're just like over layers of the culture at the time that was still seeking some sort of mythic representations that they knew from before the conversion period. What about Krampus? Feel like we what need about to bring Krampus. <laughs> Feel like we need to bring him back. 
you mess up, this big white monster is going to throw you in his sack. And, you know, there's a lot of little tales like that, um, you know, not just Krampus. Even, like, I believe the original stories of the figure that we understand as Santa Claus... Uh, as as being like a wood maker, a toy maker that would travel the forests, and if he encountered children that were bad or not hospitable towards him, that he would also take those children. Um, and I think a lot of this mythic lore uh, is just coated with a layering of just some sort of cultural thing of the time that the story emerges but underneath that layer resides a general truth or an understanding that we once held as a folk and a people before we were converted or absorbed into this christian faith so speaking of being absorbed into the christian faith because this is a part of that conversation is the whole Yuletide period and how it became essentially a Christian holiday. Um, the Constantine was the person in the 4th century that made December 25th a day of Christ's birth. Every religious scholar in the world, pretty much even the Christian ones, will tell you that December 25th is not actually the birth of Christ um, and that it has its roots in paganism. But they did this essentially to uh, try to subvert uh, what we were worshiping in the tradition and practice that we had and associate that with a false religion that they brought to us. And there was a lot of confusion caused by this. Hakon did the same thing, I believe, in the 1200s, somewhere around there, there's about, um, when he moved the practice of the Yule um, to coincide with the, essentially the Roman Catholic Church at the time. He was falling in line with them. But uh, we know because of a few authors, uh, ecclesiastical authors specifically, Bede, um, where he does talk about when Yule was practiced and that there was feasts and that it lasted for three days. So there is historicity to it, um, but there's a lot of mud that's been thrown in the water um, as far as what these days are, when we observe them, and how to observe them. And it gets a little bit into the theological concept of why we perform bloat. And there's a cosmological process that's happening at this time of the year um, that we need to re-understand. If you had to take a shot in the dark, Anthony, what would you say is the cosmological or theological process that's happening at this time for our people? The cosmological process, I would, shot in the dark, pun intended, would expand, expounding upon uh, needing or trying to bring the sun back, I would argue that there is 
some some piece of the story of the false Odin being true on a cosmological theological level or I would put more focus on Odin leading the wild hunt to snatch snatch up one snatch up the dead so the Draugr are not bothering people but to chase away the other um malicious spirits that would seek to harm the folk that's my shot in the dark all right all right well and you know we've discussed a little bit before in the past about bloat and the significance of it and specifically the public process of bloat not the private ones that people have in their homes but the public ones that we are commanded by Odin himself in the Inglinga saga to observe. And these bloats tie into the theological and cosmological processes that are at play during this time of the year. Now, let's revisit the purpose of bloat because this has been an age-old uh, question that heathens have had for uh, at least the last 50 or 60 years when we've been rediscovering what our faith is, um, is why do we actually perform bloat? What is the purpose of it? Is it just to, you know, do an exchange offer, you know, of here, I'm giving you a gift, now give me something? Or is there some sort of deeper significance uh, to it? In the episode that we did on deicide and the sacred bloat, if you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to it because we kind of explained the premise. But to give a summary again of this, there are nine specific needs of man. And these nine needs, we, we seek the aid of the gods uh, for their yarga or their help against these needs. And these needs have everything to do with us in our survival as not just individuals, but as a collective, as a tribe, as a folk, as one people. And these needs specifically are famine, misfortune, transgression, peril, war, conflict, concealment or hidden things, poverty and hunger, infertility, and sickness and plagues. These are the nine needs that were unleashed upon us, um, and they come from the Jotun. Lakin is their overseer. She is the one that brings pestilence in the theological construct of our Germanic belief system. And we can see things captured, you know, regarding how this works when, for example, we speak about elves, for example, there's the saying that, you know, I did not know if it was an elf that shot the arrow of sickness. Essentially, that our ancestors understood that these sicknesses, these plagues, these ills that happen, that there's a force behind them that caused them uh, to harm us. 
And so when we perform bloat, we are essentially reconnecting, reaffirming our connection to the God, gods and our loyalty to them for their protection with our luck over these nine needs during our lifespan. Now, each of these nine sacred bloats that we perform throughout the course of a year come in the form of three vizlas or festivals that happen. We have the autumn festival, which we spoke about in previous episodes as well, um, where we uh, do bloat to frere, the desir, and the elven. And then we have also mentioned the Yule bloat period. Uh, the Yule bloat, we perform bloat to Thor, which is Thor bloat, followed by Yule bloat, which is to Odin, for he is Yolnir. And then we also perform a sonar bloat to Freyr. And then we have the third festival, which is called Summermal, which is the summer bloats. And these bloats are the Sigur bloat, the victory bloat. Then we have the Goa bloat, and then the Gefjolnir bloat. So these are the nine bloats that are performed at the course of the year and each one of those bloats correspond to one of these nine needs and they're performed specifically as a right of protection from the gods against these needs in our life and what i argue for when it comes to this yuletide season is that this season is the culmination of all nine of those bloats that we perform throughout the different seasons of the year. And this is when the Aesir, Odin specifically, the companions of the wild hunt, uh, come during this period of time to essentially get rid of the ills that would cause us harm or cause us to suffer from these nine needs. This is the Bjarga that Odin is fulfilling through that entire process. I do also believe that there's another aspect that is happening at this time as well. I believe at this time that we also see a transmigration of souls that are happening uh, during this period of time. Something of significance for me, you know, in relation, because a lot of people will argue the 12 days of Yule is specifically Christian because they uh, culminate afterwards with the Feast of the Epiphany or whatever they call that specific Christian tradition. Um, but I would argue that that is an overlay of what the original or authentic Yule 12-day period was. Um, that period first begins with three days of the solstice. And we know from the Anglo-Saxon sources that on during the solstice period, they, would, uh, they had a tradition uh, that was called Mother's Night, Mudrit Night. Um, you know anything about the Mother's Night tradition or, or story? 
Anthony? Uh, just what you've shared with me, that while, yes, there is a bit of general mothers to it, its actual significance comes from acknowledging not the mother of night, uh, who is also the mother of Riga and Dogger. Uh, and yeah, that's about the extent of Mother's Night that I know. Okay. Because a lot of people believe Mother's Night, and they've been practicing this tradition for years, which is, you know, it's, it's a wholesome tradition that they practice. Um, but what I, what I would point out to is that Mother's Night specifically relates to the winter solstice uh, through the, the goddess that we know as Not or the uh, goddess of night. And that the Mother's Night tradition is something that is attested to having been practiced, uh, is essentially a night of recognition f uh, to not herself and giving offerings to her. Um, I practiced this on the, on the eve of the solstice itself. Uh, we have a ritual, as I kind of explained a little bit earlier, but we have a specific uh, prayer that we say in my home on this night and the offerings that we give. Uh, and then the second night, the night of the solstice, uh, we then uh, focus on Frigga, or Mother Earth, who was born from, from that. And that is because we seek to give her gifts to make her uh, show us bounty during the wild hunt because she is also a companion of Odin during this process. She's also the mother of Freya and Freyr who give us bounties in different ways as well. And we essentially make a invocation to her that uh, she whispers into the ears of Odin during the wild hunt that he may show favor upon us. And that she may also uh, hearken to her children, Freya and Freyr, that they'll bring bounty into our life in the coming year. So that kind of com comprises a couple of those solstice nights. Um, and then begins the wild hunt, which last night being the 22nd of December, um, I believe is when the wild hunt happens and it's a nine day period when Odin and his companions on the wild hunt uh, essentially purge the land of ills that would that would seek to harm uh, the folk. And I believe this is also where the Christmas tree tradition comes from. Um, everybody pretty much in America put every year puts up a Christmas tree in their home. And we know that this tradition goes back hundreds of years of people doing it, but nobody actually really knows the origin of this tradition. Um, however, I believe that the origin of this tradition it goes all the way back to the time of the conversion periods uh, when our sacred groves were being destroyed. For it was during this period of Yule, during the wild hunt, when... Odin would fly by that our folk would gather for the ward tree in their grove or the protection tree in their grove and they would hang offerings 
to Hanging Tear himself, to the Hanging God himself, to Odin himself, to seek favors from him. And um, even as late as the 1600s, uh, the uh, Lapish folk would still actually hang food in uh, what they would craft these little boats with oars and udders and everything and hang them from trees as a gift for the wild hunt. So this is a tradition like that we know actually existed. And I believe that during the conversion period, uh, whenever our sacred groves were destroyed, and whenever the Christians were known to cut down our tree, sacred trees, for example, like Thor's tree, um, our folk would begin to bring in a tree into their home to conceal it, to still offer offerings to Odin during this period. And slowly over time, the absorption of this tradition became what we know as our modern day Christmas tree. At least that's what makes sense to me. <laughs> I mean, it makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, I'm looking at my tree and I don't know. I got a little Batman figurine, a Nintendo controller. I don't know if Odin has much use for the decorations. <laughs> I might be burnt. <laughs> right. Well, I think by the, the, the time that uh, we started putting decorations on the tree, I mean, our folk had generally, as a whole, lost that memory of what the purpose was. Uh, there was a time when we, you know, not even that long ago, when people actually put candles burning on their Christmas trees. It was a thing. And that still goes back to the light um, in the flame, the sacred holy flame, which goes back to solstice itself again, um, that brings warmth and to our homes. But uh, I think we can get back to doing it in the way that has significance if we look at the purpose behind why we do why we do this and i'm not saying that somebody has to sit in their home and say i'm putting this on my tree because it represents this you know but having an understanding of the actions that you're doing and partaking in um, does bring a deeper sense of significance to a person and will also relay that significance to their children uh, when they're doing it and explaining these things to them to help them understand, telling them stories. Bringing back a sense of why we do the things that we do is a very big thing, not just in Yule specifically, but across the board. Do you know uh, other Christmas traditions that may or may not be pagan? I want to say the mistletoe wreath I remember reading that somewhere, but I can't, I, I don't, I want to say that something that had some significance to Balder outside of that, it was a mistletoe, uh, branch that killed him. Um, 
but something about hanging the mistletoe and then kissing under the mistletoe. I want to say that had a had a pagan significance. Yeah, I've I've heard that said as well, and it's funny that you bring that specific one up. I was at the bloat I was at last week. Somebody specifically asked me about that and you know the odd part of it being the mistletoe is what actually killed balder why would why would we uh see this as you know something of luck during this season or or, or used and i kind of have a my own personal opinions on it um nothing that i can specifically point to um but uh, I think that it was actually something that was promoted as a tradition by the church itself um, as a way to be somewhat subversive uh, towards us. as kind of like a slap in the face or a middle finger to Balder. Um, I don't know, you know, if there's any sort of validity to that belief that I have, but uh, that's kind of my thoughts on it. I mean, it would make sense to me, and it I, I don't feel like that would break with their established MO. Right. But people argue that the mistletoe, obviously, that, you know, there's the story of, like, the Holly King and the Oak King, and they battle for control twice a year, and that, you know, that's how it kind of relates is the uh, Holly King gaining the upper hand and the crown to wear during this period of time and just like i mentioned earlier with other folklore tales although this is a tale i don't i don't think folklore is necessarily true i think that it hides truth within it and it's layered in a way that you have to extract what that truth out of it is and we also have to be cognizant of the fact that folklore was one of the main uh, channels that the church used uh, for propaganda. You know, and we talked about this before where they would replace, you know, descriptions of our holy places as places where devils gather, for example. So I'm a lot more skeptical when it comes to the folkloric information because it requires a very discerning eye to read behind the, the lines. But that also gets us to the question of, you know, how do we discern that truth? And it's important that we have a, a, a true north that we look to, a litmus test that we use. And we, we've spoken in the past about the epic method or the mythological method for understanding theological beliefs and ritual practices and the way that we do that is by actually taking etic and skaldic poetry which we know is the literal words of our heathen ancestors that that spoke these things and compare any other information to that and something which contradicts that information you know we have to set to the side um, and be really skeptical and really seek to try to understand how this could even fit in the pattern if it contradicts it sometimes it can you know point in different directions but uh, we have to keep an open eye to that I was just going to say like that's I mean, for me, things like that, like the, the joy is in the journey. 
you know, if I'm looking at something and it's going to, and it's going five, six ways, you know, it's, you know, how I am, I like to go down the five, six ways and just see what, see what comes of it. So you, you want to know another part of a Yule tradition or part of the Yule process that a lot of people are unaware about is the bear. Did you know that the bear has a very significant part of this this season, this process? Ooh, well, I just want to say, ooh, we're going there. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> <laughs> I was I was waiting for this. Um, no, outside of the what's the word I'm looking for? The rites of passage when it comes to uh, men and kings. Or leaders doing a bear hunt. I, I do not know the significance of the bear to Yule. So please enlighten me in the audience. So I'm, I'm not going to go fully into the bear stuff in this episode because that that topic actually de, you know deserves its own whole episode. And I know that people have gotten their tongues wet on the whole bear uh, quote unquote cult thing. Uh, I, I wrote an article on the pnwkindreds.com website on the bear motive motif, and um, it's really educational. You can go find it if you like. I, I, uh, I love that article, actually. But in regards to the Yule time period, so we know our folk had a very huge reverence for the bear, and we saw the bear as actually our ancestor that uh, women were called bira or female bears and men were called bjorn or bear born or sometimes thor born which the word born is the same word as bear for example but it was believed and i also believe this there's a metaphysical process to this though and we'll get into that in the bear episode, but suffice to say for now that it was believed that the bear held powers over uh, transforming during its hibernation period and able to leave its body, and that it assisted with the transmigration of the souls that exist. Now, in relation to this period of tide, the Yuletide period, um, it's really hard to say exactly how this, how the bear plays its role in this process with Odin, but it kind of hints at what I suggested earlier about the, that during this period, there's also a migration of souls that happen. And in the corpus of the bear tradition and relating to, uh, the solstice and, and whatnot, um, there's this idea that somehow the bear, like in some of the oldest stories that we know of, uh, hunts a stag, which is responsible for the death of the sun or the light, and essentially brings this back. Now, the bear itself, um, uh, people debate this, but I believe this to be true, is the animal that 
Freya rides. I know a lot of people believe that it means cats, that her animals were, you know, the feline uh, creatures. But the word that's actually used for that is uh, a word that can be just as easily translated to mean bear. So this idea that uh, cats or the feline creatures is, is the animal of Freya may not actually be true, and it may just be a bad translation that has persisted uh, for a couple hundred years now in people's understanding of, of this. The reason why this is important for me to bring up is because it is during the solstice process in the awakening of the sun that the regenerating powers of the fertility gods and goddesses like Freya and Freya, for example, uh, come to be. And that it is during this time, what I believe is that Freya is brought to the earth guided by the bear, riding the bear, to bring her fer fertility in the spring. Um, this is just an idea that I have. There's not a lot of information out there. But when I meditate on, you know, the importance of the bear and what it represented to our people and the correlation with Freya riding this and the bear's significance in the winter hunt that would happen where hunters would go find the caves of the bears during this period of time because they would be sleeping. Um, this to me, you know, makes that connection of the bear. Is it, you know, cohesive and gives, you know, a full understanding of the role of the bear during this period? No, it doesn't. But it at least for me gives me an idea of what that role could be during this process. There's a lot of traditions that still exist in Europe. We have like, for example, the bear festivals. And there's lots of places in Europe that have bear festivals. But there's also a tradition in several places of the wild men that essentially dress up during this Yule period and they make themselves in the figure of like bear men. And uh, I think this tradition comes about because of the significance of the bear during this period of time. Do you know anything about any of these festivals that I mentioned? Sorry, my brain just went down a freaking weird rabbit hole. <laughs> okay, some people are going to call me qu crazy or too far off the woo-woo, but I've always wondered if there, is just, if there is any type of possibility that berserkers and ulfendars the most powerful of them were actually able to change th their physical shape. And that is where we get the, the like in the Ulfendar bit specifically, the werewolf. Oh, absolutely. That's where the folklore of the werewolf, I mean, begins at is, is that belief in the transformation of the man into the wolf 
Was it a literal physical transformation like we see in uh, werewolf movies today? I, I, I don't really buy that. But I think that there's a transformation within that person that happens um, during that process that makes him like the wolf inside. Um, but there's no doubt that that is the origin stories of the werewolves, which is actually really cool that that came up because uh, it's a good example of the truths behind folklore that we can find that while the story itself is not necessarily true when they are saying, you know, he went out and changed into a wolf, but rather, you know, the metaphysical uh, analogy of it is where the truth lies when it comes to folklore. I was just say, call me woo, but I still have a, an inkling of hope that there is some way of a physical transformation. Just, just a twinkling hope. <laughs> I'll stop with my woo-woo stuff. Sorry. <laughs> No, that's really cool. But I should make sure I draw a distinction because I know that there's some people that are just tuning into our podcast. Um, you know, there is a difference between folklore and uh, the mythological lore. The mythological lore was not regionalized. It was broadly uh, understood and spread broadly throughout all of the Germanic lands. Our folk had a single cosmological concept of how the universe works, uh, the gods and goddesses. Um, so when I speak about, you know, the metaphysical truths of folklore being hidden, um, and the same thing can be said of mythological lore in a sense, but there's a certain part of the mythological lore that is, is, is true on the literal sense as well. There's so many layers to it. But uh, I did want to make sure I, I made that distinction in this conversation so as not to confuse people. Well, and I think folklore is also more representative of local, local culture. Like there's a broader Germanic culture, but then there's the, the culture of the regions and the tribes in that region. Um, to you know, to use an example, we are in the Pacific Northwest, you know, you go down south and, you know, we've got our own stuff, various stuff up here in the Pacific Northwest. The folks down south got their own stuff going on. And I'm just using that as it's two regions for as much as we have in common. There are things that make us distinctly different. And in certain aspects, you could say we have our own separate folklores on things, but there are significant things that tie us together. Broader, cosmological, political, you know, there, there, there are, on the big scale, there are things that make, that make us the same. But when you break down the regions, there are also things that differentiate us. And I think folklore is an example of taking the bigger cosmological truths and then there are 
regional focuses that not that they invalidate, not that one invalidates the other or doesn't hold something as, as true or of lesser importance, but there's just more of a focus on certain things. Right. There's like a regional um, expression of a bigger cosmological understanding. Uh, like you could use the example, you could also use the example of there were some tribes that honored Thor, Frigga, Freya, Freyr as their the patron or matron of their tribe, but even they still acknowledged Odin as all father. Exactly. So I want to go through a couple of things here um, about the Yule period to give somebody a cohesive tradition. And I know that there's going to be people out there that are going to say, well, you know, that's a modern interpretation or uh, where do you get your attestation of these practices? And I already mentioned or we already mentioned at the beginning of this podcast about, you know, just the importance of having that tradition that carries on. Um, and what I do here, uh, as I mentioned, is each night uh, there's a specific prayer that we say over this 12-day period. And each night there's three nights of the solstice. Um, and we have to make sure that we understand that the day begins when the sun sets for our folk. That has always been true. It is not when the sun rises or when we awake on the day. So when I speak of days, I'm speaking of our historical days as we understood it in a lunar moon cycle. For we reckon time by the moon. So the first three days of the solstice, I've already kind of went over, um, and then the wild hunt each night relates to a specific need. And these needs, I'll mention the Noriana Society and their great work that they did in uh, bringing this to light for everybody in the purpose of bloat. But uh, during the wild hunt period, uh, the each night, Odin is extinguishing specific forces or things which would seek to cause us ill and i know some people will say that the idea of like evil never really existed for the concept of the germanic people but that's simply not true the word evil in fact comes from the word ill which is a very germanic word um, we understood bad things to happen to us as things which were evil so, or things which caused us ill or harm. So, that's the understanding of it. Uh, during these nine nights of the wild hunt, we hang upon the ward tree, our offering to Odin uh, to show us favor. Uh, last night, um, I'll give everybody here an example of one of the prayers that we said. Um, at my home and we shared this on the channel too so if you haven't checked out the sacred stew channel on telegram you can download telegram on your android or apple store or you can go to their website and download it directly from there um, but let me see here 
As Odin rides on this first night of the wild hunt, we remember the nine needs that cause us ill. Famine, misfortune, transgression, peril, war, concealment, poverty, infertility, sickness. Odin shall ride for nine nights, each night collecting beings that seek to bring harm to us. We hang an offering upon our ward tree this night, seeking favor with Odin, Ol Oski himself, that he removes those ills which would bring famine to our homes. May the folk in the lands in which we live be purged of these evils. Odin, Allfather, hanging tear, we wish you luck on your hunt and give you gifts for your journey. May you hear our words and have favor over us. Alu. So that's an example of a prayer that my family and I have done. And um, each night of these nine nights, we'll have a similar prayer and offering to Odin for each of the needs that we have. Um, after this period happens, then we wait for the new moon to come. And then the first full moon after that new moon is when we actually have the Yule Vizla or the Yule Festival. That is when that happens. And that is historically a three-day festival. And on each of the days, a bloat is performed. Now, I know because of modern times and how dispersed people are, and we don't live in lands all huddled together in manners and such, so getting together, you know, especially when it's cold outside, um, is not as easy as any of us would like it to be. So, and one thing that my kindred does is we will actually combine the three bloats into a one-day vizla. Um, I don't think that doing that uh, causes any harm. I think the point of the three-day vizlas was to bring us all together and people would come from far, far away and it wasn't as easy as just turning around, you know, the next day and heading home. But uh, that's an important time because those three bloats that we do, uh, the Thor bloat and the Yule bloat and the Sonar bloat is what begins this process that happens for that next year. Um, and it's also to give uh, gifts and to remove the transgressions that we've done by fulfilling those bloats. And those transgressions that I speak of are harms that we cause to ourselves, to our families, to those that we love, our friends, our communities. Um, it's also a time to make up, you know, for oaths that were broken as well. Uh, that's what the purpose of the solar bloat was for. Uh, traditionally during the Yuletide period, which extended for more than 12 days because it extended all the way till the Yule festival, there would actually, for the sonar bloat, there would be a Yule boar. And the people would come and touch the boar and make oaths upon it. And this is a tradition that's important to keep and to practice because it keeps us accountable. It keeps us accountable to... Our gods it keeps us accountable to our family it keeps us accountable to our communities 
and keeps keep keeps us accountable to ourselves and our actions. Would you have anything to add to to that, Anthony? Um, just two things, not directly about bringing the boar around, but just on the touching on how you brought up that there are. I would say our ancestors didn't have the concept of evil. I I would argue, or I don't want to say argue, I would acknowledge that from my readings and understandings, our ancestors did not have the con the Christian Christianized concept of absolute good and absolute evil. But they but the ill we fully understood that there were forces and beings out there that that would only brought harm. So the in the purposes of the wild hunt, if you don't, if there's no way you can look at it as evil because you're working from evil as being only a christian concept we all can agree that there are forces out there that seek to cause you your family your folk and the gods ill cause them harm so that would be the purposes of the wild hunt and then also for our more hardcore reconstructionist listeners that you know the example you gave you know, they're going to ask, oh, you know, what are your sources or, oh, that's just a modern interpretation. I would submit to them that we live in modern times. Viking era ancestors, just to use a broad term that everybody's going to understand, did not do things exactly the same way as our Stone Age ancestors. There were modern interpretations. And our purpose in giving the example that you gave is to give those people that don't that don't know or you know even those that they just don't have the time to do the studying that you and I and other people do to just give them a starting point if we can find a fully reconstructed 12 day ritual we will absolutely share that but for where we're at now, I think giving people somewhere to start practicing a tradition is just as important as finding and reconstructing things from our past. But even in reconstructing things from our past, we live in 2022. We live in times we have to adapt those traditions to where we are at today because that is the same things our ancestors did i would i, I i'm gonna stop you real quick because i i want to touch on something before you go further along but um i would use the example of uh a good modern reinventing the will if you would would say uh, for these three-day vizlas, uh, 
that putting them together because of modern constraints that we have with the distance that people live to live today and not really having the most people having the ability to host you know like a whole family or kindred into their homes for a, a three-day period that doing that on you know a single day combining those rituals into a single day would be an okay uh, reinvention or, or modern interpretation of how to perform these acts. Um, when it comes specifically about the solstice in the Yule, I would argue that it, it actually is uh, not a modern interpretation of what I'm explaining, but an ancient understanding that our folk had. We know, A, that every single Indo-European folk that ever existed uh, had some sort of rituals that preceded uh, the solstice and during the solstice and right after the solstice. And we know from our Eddic lore that we have that uh, Mother Nat brings birth to Dagar, the day, and that the solstice is widely considered to be a remnant memory of like a thimble winter or when the sun did not shine. And as you mentioned earlier, there's some places in the northern hemisphere our ancestors lived where there were days that went without any sun at all. So, but, and then I would point as well to the attested historical texts about the Mother Night uh, tradition that Bede records and talks about, and that we understand from the Edic texts that not the goddess not brings forth um she is the she is the mother of the night and that what more suitable on the eve of the solstice day itself that we celebrate that mother night uh, then we also know historically that uh, during the same time frame though people debate when and where that there is a wild hunt that happens and my argument is that the wild hunt precedes the birth of um, Dagar, uh, or excuse me, comes after the birth of Dagar, after Mother's Night, after the solstice has happened. For it's then when Odin goes and cleans and clears, and there's a migration of souls that also transpire during this time. Uh, we know with historical accuracy that our ancestors gathered in groves during these periods and we know with historical accuracy 100 percent that they hung offerings in trees now it may be a modern interpretation to say that our current uh quote-unquote christmas trees um come from this tradition I would concede that part. It, that might be a modern interpretation, but it is not a leap of logic of what has happened in the past and why we do this, why we hang a tree. I mean, the tree was one of the most holiest things to our folk and that we hang things upon this tree, today ornaments, but in the past we know that we hung offerings to Odin. So... This is a tradition that is attested, but the implementation of how it was done is not necessarily known. So when we re reconstruct 
what this Yule tradition, this Yuletide tradition is, we know with certainty of fact that these certain things did in fact transpire. All I'm doing now is offering a suggestion that's cohesive, that fills in all of the gaps, you know, of why we perform bloats and how all of the bloats in the course of the entire year relate to this specific time and period whenever Odin and his companions go on the wild hunt to purge the land of ills. So I do believe this is a authentic, valid tradition and I'm just kind of filling in gaps on each day on how to actually acknowledge and build a tradition for my family that will carry on without confusion. Without confusion. That's what I'm doing. Don't hate me for doing that. <laughs> well, and that's why I made a point to just... I respect the hardcore reconstructionist. reconstructionist but when that is the only way that the, or the only mentality, we both know there are some people that they, they either stay completely in the past or there are some people that adopt this forward facing Asatru where they do not acknowledge the past at all. They seek to build new traditions. And I feel like those mentalities are, are, are extremes one way or another. And the only way that we are going to thrive is if the vast majority of us approach this in the approach it in the middle. We look back to find the spirit and the, and the essence and the why. But we also do things in such a way that we are going to be able to do them today. And maybe, uh, you know, exactly. We can't just go blood eagling traitors and oath breakers. So we've got to adapt. No, exactly. And, you know, it's one thing to invent a brand new tradition it's another thing to express a known tradition those are two different things so we can have a modern interpretation of a tradition like i mentioned earlier for example the christmas tree and what that represents and, and how it plays its role in this period of time and we talked about this before, about the rocks, and you can either start from scratch and build energy around that, and there's validity to that too, or you can grab onto a tradition that already has power to it, that already has a connection for us, and attach yourself to that. And even for those that are skeptical, what are you doing for your children? How are you teaching them about our faith? How are you teaching them to be the person that they are metaphysically and spiritually. Even if you have a hard time grasping some of these concepts or reasons of why, you have to be able to do something and, and say something on a consistent basis for it to actually be a tradition. If something is new and made up, it's not actually a tradition. The tradition 
is the continual repetitiveness of what you're doing. And all we're saying is attach yourself to something that has significance. And by you going through these motions, your children will learn the significance because they won't know any other thing. The wild hunt. In Germanic lands all over northern Europe, the wild hunt was known far and wide. In Scandinavia, it was called Uskarje, the terrifying ride, or Odensjagd, Odin's hunt. In Middle High German, it was called Wotenesheir, Odin's army. And in modern German, Wotenesheir, furious inspired army, or Wildjagd, the wild hunt. During this time, folk would make offerings to the Yolian company, which wander about in the air. We call this Yolian company as it derives its name from the word Yoli, or Yule, which now signifies as much as the feast of the nat nativity of Christ for Christians in today's time. But in ages before, when we knew not Christianity, it was used for this time of the year during the winter solstice. Many folk confused this period as being Yule itself. This confusion was sown hundreds of years ago when emperors and kings moved new Christian practices to coincide and overlay with our traditional holy days. They co-opted and gradually assimilated our traditions, slowly leading our folk away from our native beliefs and understandings. They did this by reinventing our customs with Christian ones. They overlaid our traditions with foreign ideas and concepts. Now, while this period that we are in is not Yule itself, it is connected to Yule. The Yule festival comes when the first full moon rises after the new moon that appears shortly after solstice. The old Anglian cognate of Yule is Yoli. It was the Anglo-Saxon's name for a two-month midwinter season. It incorporates both periods of time in December and in January in today's modern calendar. This calendrical reference attests how these two periods or two months blend together with one mythological structure that explains the theological functions of what we have come to know today as the 12 days of Yule. For the period we commonly call Yule consisted originally of the three days or nights of solstice, followed by the wild hunt for nine days. The wild hunt was the culmination of the nine sacred bloats in the course of the year, when Odin and his company would rid the land of beings which sought to harm our folk and bring the Bjarga, or the help, for the nine sacred needs. The Yule bloat performed during the Yule Vizla happens after the wild hunt, when the full moon appears. That is the true Yule. The true three-day Vizla when we perform Thor bloat, Yol bloat, and Sonar bloat. Hail Yolnir, hail Yala Hera, hail the master of Yol, hail Odin. This has been the Sacred Stew. I am Anthony. My co-host is James. Y'all have a good night.